0: Actually, the first thing I want to say is welcome to the coordinators who are, as you know, joining us for uh, five days until Sunday. And they'll be in and out. Uh, Some of them are here right now. Also just wanted to say how much I'm appreciating the, the quality of silence in the house. It's very, very quickly this retreat seemed to just... I don't know if you felt it too, settle very beautifully into a lot of stillness and quietness and real sense of depth of, of uh, practice and contemplation. It's very lovely. So, the theme I want to explore a little bit this morning is truthfulness and authenticity. And to look at some, some of the aspects of that. Well, when we consider ourselves and our existence as human beings, we see that one of the kind of less noble, less pretty things that we witness, aspects that we witness, is our capacity to be inauthentic and untruthful at times with others, but also with ourselves. And uh, correspondingly, one of the more beautiful, one of the more noble uh, dimensions of our being is our capacity to be truthful, even when circumstances are difficult, when pressures are uh, on that to not be so. We can be truthful, we can align with the truth, we can be rooted in the truth, with others and with ourselves. I want to go into these uh, this a little bit, and um, please, uh, please hear this uh, as... Uh, not a preaching, I'm talking to all of us, and I include myself. I'm talking to myself as well, and uh, listening to. So in relationship to other people, uh, the Buddha obviously spoke about speaking truth, being truthful in one's communication. But he didn't just call it at that, leave it at that. He actually said, speaking what's true, but... Only what's true and helpful. There's already uh, a modification, there's already uh, a concern there. It's not just about blurting the truth out. Speaking what's true and helpful, non-harming, at the right time. So it gets quite a little bit more rich and complicated. At the right time and in a way that can be heard or only if you feel that the other person can hear it and digest it and take it in and learn from it. So it's not just about blurting out the truth in an insensitive and inappropriate manner. Let's turn on the other side. We want to look a little bit at the ways we are as human beings or can be untrue. The ways we can be untrue at times. Now, sometimes, obviously, as human beings, we encounter this. There's deliberate lying, deliberate lying. And, and why do we do that? Well, usually because there's some sense of gaining something from that. More often though, in the kind of environments we move in perhaps, it might be more that it's coming out of fear. That we're lying out of fear. And we could say all fear is rooted in the self. That's true. Something the self wants to preserve or protect. Oftentimes, if we find if one finds oneself lying, it's actually coming out of a fear of rejection, something around feeling loved. Actually, the bottom line is and we lie because we want to save face or we're afraid what another person uh, might think. Oftentimes, the untruth that might be there is more subtle. It's more subtle than a deliberate, outright lie. Sometimes we might might find ourselves in, in relationship with someone, with a partner, with a friend, and something's going on that's difficult, and we're not telling the truth about it. We're withholding it. We're not communicating it. Now, if we go back to what the Buddha said, sometimes that's skillful, it's wise, it's totally appropriate, it's well considered, but sometimes it's coming out of fear. And when we don't express the truth, Out of fear. Have you noticed? Have you noticed how it saps the energy out of a relationship? How it saps the sense of connection, of contentment, of of well being that might flow in the relationship? It actually drains out of the dynamic when we're withholding the truth about something out of fear. This can be verbal, it can also be non-verbal. I was talking with someone recently, he's in quite a prominent position in a sangha somewhere else, and was feeling, this has been building up over actually some years, was feeling that he had to actually fit in in a certain way. And so he modified his behavior, he modified his speech, he modified his presentations, he modified what he wear, etc., 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 it was coming from the the perception that he, he needed to fit in, to be a certain way. I need to be a certain way. I need to be like this for this group of people because they're like that and they want me to be this way. This was all in his mind. And slowly, over time, anger built up. Anger, resentment, obviously. And in that presenting himself a certain way, sorry right there, Tom, presenting himself a certain way uh, slowly began to feel more and more disconnected from himself, not being real and with that more anger and with the disconnection uh, again a draining of the ability even to see the situation clearly because there wasn't the connection the the, the vitality and the presence of, of truth and self there and I'm sure we've all seen this and I, in the different things I do and the different circles I move in. I've been at some meetings and e- either for myself one feels a pressure to conform or fit in and how difficult it is to speak the truth. And sometimes that's operating and people are not even aware that that, that, that dynamic and that pressure is operating. And I've been at some meetings that it's almost hard to believe what goes on there. Almost hard to believe and a person says something in the group, blatantly untrue. And even had a person say that, and then and then laugh, and then just brush it off, and it and it moves on. What 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 goes on? What goes on with us when we speak? When there's untruth like that, actually, there's some cues of discomforts. takes in the body. It takes quite a lot to sort of ignore them or suppress them, and yet as human beings we have this capacity and we can do it quite a lot a lot of this fitting in has to do with feeling enough love inside if I love myself enough if there's enough of that if there's enough buoyancy of that the pressure to fit in with the group dynamic or whatever it is is much much less when that's not enough I'm pulled this way I'm pulled that way i look this way I'll look that way how you want me to be So part of this is is actually being interested and conscious in the hidden influences and motivations in any situation and just being aware of them. So there's untruth with others. What I'm actually much more interested in for this talk today, and that's a whole area, uh, truth speaking with others, but much more today what I'm interested in is, is this in relationship to ourself. Truth and myself, truth in relationship to myself, my practice, my life, my being. This is a quote from someone called David Livingston Smith, and says, The ever-present possibility of deceit is a crucial dimension of all human relationships, even the most central, our relationship with our own selves. He makes a very interesting point. Lying is obliged by its very nature to cover its traces. For in order to lie effectively, we must lie about lying. Right? Does that make sense? Well, when we don't tell the truth to ourselves, we have to do that as well. We actually have to somehow conceal the fact that we're not telling the truth to ourselves. Why is this important? Because it has consequences. There's beautiful consequences of speaking the truth, telling the truth to ourselves, and standing the truth. And there's and there's important consequences, unfortunate consequences of not doing that. As I said at the beginning, this is something we, we are involved with as human beings. So it's not to, at all to point the finger at anyone. It's all we, we. A few months ago, I was talking with a practitioner who, for the last few years, has been living in South Africa and very much involved with the Dharma scene there. And he was here on retreat for a few days. And we were talking about his practice, and then we got on to how it was going in South Africa. And he, like uh, from other practitioners I've heard from in, in South Africa, was actually a little bit bemoaning. There seemed to be a real lack of depth in the Dharma culture in South Africa. It was predominantly white South Africans, and it didn't, it seemed like everyone was sort of skitting on the surface of practice. And he, he brought this up by himself, and then he went on to reflect, and, and he, he said, You know, all the time I've been there, I've never heard one white South African say, You know, I, I feel really ashamed of what went on here. it's just what he was reporting and he made a connection that that denial of truth had a direct impact on the possibility of deepening in practice in, in, in that uh, sangha, in that, in that scene so there's deliberate lying I'm deliberately, consciously not telling the truth but there's also much more pervasive much more subtle is not being interested in truth that's more common, not being interested in truth. I found this um this passage the other day. So a liar would we would actually when you're lying, it actually involves some kind of ill will. You're deliberately trying to deceive. And you would assume that to be called a liar, you have to actually understand an area or a situation or a truth. So something understand some degree of understanding of something to be called a liar, and then deliberately telling them an untruth. So There's a philosopher called Harry Frankfurt of Princeton University and uh, he discusses this issue at length in his... This is taken from another book. Discusses this issue at length in his classic 1986 essay on bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Under his model, bullshit, so-called, is a form of falsehood distinct from lying. The liar knows and cares about the truth but deliberately sets out to mislead. The truth speaker knows the truth and is trying to give it to us. The bullshitter, meanwhile, does not care about the truth and is simply trying to impress us. It is impossible this is this is Professor Frankfurt it is in, it is impossible for someone to lie unless he thinks he knows the truth. Producing bullshit requires no such conviction. When an honest man speaks, he says only what he believes to be true. And for the liar, it is correspondingly indispensable that he considers his statements to be false. For the bullshitter, however, all these bets are off. He is neither on the side of the true nor on the side of the false. His eye is not on the facts at, at all, as the eyes of the honest man and of the liar are, except in so far as they may be pertinent to his interest in getting away with what he says." He does not care whether the things he says describe reality correctly. He just picks them out or makes them up to suit his purposes. That was in a book about uh, something else, but have you ever felt like you've been on the receiving end of that? (laughs) It's actually fairly prevalent. What I'm... Interesting as well as where we've been on the receiving end of that. Because it finds its way into all kinds of circles, all ki- including spiritual circles. And I, for one, know that I've been plenty of times on the receiving end of that in spiritual circles. Plenty of times. Something is going on. is actually not interested in the truth. Some whole other, something else going on. It's not even that our lovely, beautiful tradition is exempt from that. I can't remember if Christina brought it up in the opening talk but why is it, just a small little sliver of things, why is it in this tradition that we have been so shy for so many years of the word renunciation did Christina say this in the opening talk? I can't remember and instead using the word letting go what's going on there? What, what, what was going on or for, for some people just ignoring that whole realm of renunciation maybe it's maybe it's just as important as mindfulness or rejecting it outright I don't do that and you, you, often times hearing experienced practitioners say I am renouncing a lot and one gets a sense is one actually grappling with this question of what this might mean to me as a lay practitioner or is it just convenient to put it aside I am renouncing a lot or I've done that because I've been to India or I did it, I did it years ago or I had a trauma in my past or I did renounce a lot years ago and now I'm practicing indulgence to balance it out or someone says I practice no what we have is the tantric approach without a real understanding of what that means. I mean what if i said i did i've done mindfulness i've done that i've done metta it's difficult stuff to kind of bring up and look at there was recently about 2 weeks ago there was an article i saw on the internet and it said in the uh, in in the united states today uh, 2009, end 2009, considerably less people uh, felt and perceived climate change as a serious problem and one that needs addressing, considerably less than in 2007. Which to me again is quite interesting and, and I have no idea why, but small conjecture, does that have anything to do with the economy and the financial crisis? and an eclipsing of what becomes even true or or worthy of paying attention to. I'm not going to say that, but it came up as a a wondering. What I do want to say, the next point I want to make, is that our perception of things, and so our perception of what is and what isn't true, is actually dependent on a lot of conditions, multiple, multiple conditions going on there. And as human beings, nowadays we're subject to all kinds of media and advertising that may have something to do with what's going on in in that poll. But there are big implications for all this. Because when the perception changes, our choice changes, our choices in life And our choices about very big things will change, dependent on our perception. That perception is dependent on all kinds of factors. And this is something we need to be interested in. Also, someone emailed me this. Uh, So this is a true true account. A man standing in Washington, D.C. metro station on a cold January morning in 2007 opened a violin case he'd been carrying and began to play... He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes, a little more than 45 minutes. During that time, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds and then hurried to meet his schedule. Four minutes later, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw the money in the till and, without stopping, continued to walk. Six minutes. A young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk again. Ten minutes. A three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him along hurriedly as the kids stopped to look at the violinist. Finally, the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced them to move on. Forty-five minutes. The musician played... Only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected $32. One hour. He finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best uh, concert violinists in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. (laughs) Two days before, Joshua Bell sold out a theatre in Boston where the seats averaged $100. This is a real story. Joshua Bell playing incognito in the metro station was organised by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste and people's priorities. The question is raised, in a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? As far as this talk, perhaps. Do we recognise talent in an unexpected context? Or is it hyped by what goes around it? One possible, this is what they say, one possible conclusion reached from this experiment could be if we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing some of the finest music ever written with one of the most beautiful instruments how many other things are we missing? And then right at the end, again pertinent for this talk we should base value on what is it worth, not what does it cost. I was also reading recently about the placebo effect. Does everyone know what that is, placebo, in, if it, English isn't your first language? It's when you give a false medicine to someone, uh, it's just a little bit of sugar, there's nothing in it, and actually they get better. And reading, there's actually a lot of scientific investigation of this phenomenon. This is very interesting, I find. The cost of a medicine... Dramatically improves its uh, efficaciousness as, as a medicine, regardless of, even if it's just a placebo. A more expensive placebo will be better for you than a placebo that doesn't cost so much. Four pills, placebo pills, are better than two. They also, you get twice as much side effects. <laughs> An injection being more dramatic as a kind of medical intervention, again, just placebo, just salt water, much more dramatic in its effect than a pill. Uh, some kind of medical invention involving elaborate ritual and big machines with lights and lasers and all the rest of it, again, a lot more effective. Packaging, very much more effective. Fake knee operations, keyhole surgery, the doctor goes in there and just sort of plays around a little bit. <laughs> Uh, fake heart operations, unbelievable, for angina. Again, nothing actually done. Um, pacemakers put in but not switched on. <laughs> Very statistically significant uh, you know, beneficial effects. Not just in how people feel, but in their actual symptoms. Okay, that's all interesting. What I want you to reflect on is, how does this apply to other areas? Other areas, same same principle. How does it spill out into other areas in our life? In Al Gore's film, The Inconvenient Truth, some of you might have seen it, there's a piece in it where he talks about if you put a frog in cold water, if you put a frog in boiling water, the frog immediately jumps out. It knows it's not good for it. If you put a frog in room temperature water and you slowly heat the water up, I don't know why anyone would think of doing this but you slowly heat the water up the frog stays in there and eventually will die unless you take it out it won't jump out the point he was making was that something in our perception about suddenness and dramaticness makes us notice something And something like climate change, because it's undramatic, because it's slow over time, we don't notice it. It doesn't register. It doesn't register as something needing our action or attention. Compared with something like 9-11, two planes slam into the World Trade Center, very dramatic, very sudden, everybody wakes up. Everybody moves uh, lots of resources. I remember similarly, when I was living in America, I can't remember where it was, there was a, it's happened more than once in the world, but there was a school, shooting in a school. A gunman walked into a school, young, very young children started shooting, I think 25 or so uh, children were killed and, and a few adults. And again, front page news, horror, big, uh, big thing. Every day in the world, as I'm sure you're aware, 4,000 children die every day just from not having clean water. Just from that. Every day. What would happen if a shooting happened in different place, the shooting like that, 20 kids every day in different places in the world? It would be dominant news. Partly it's the media. Partly it's this thing about what's dramatic and what's not. And partly, again, one conjectures. Is it that we don't so much identify with people on the other side of the world, different color, etc., etc.? When we were talking about emotions the other day, and there were a lot of pieces (coughs) about truthfulness in in regards to being honest with what one's feeling, etc. There was also uh, something we were talking about believing and assuming more difficult or negative emotions to be somehow more real. And how common that is, that I somehow believe my sadness or my depression or my uh, anger somehow to be more real than another emotion. And this whole concept, psychological concept of denial, I don't know, what it, it's probably from Freud, but uh, kind of popularized perhaps 50s and 60s, 70s, um, again, that usually leans towards denying something difficult, some difficult emotion or memory, etc. My experience working with practitioners is that they're just as likely, or we are just as likely, to deny our joy and to deny our peace and to deny our sense of spaciousness and freedom and happiness. Just as likely. But with practice we can begin seeing through this, seeing this lopsidedness of what we take to be real. really important part of practice. And also as time goes by with practice and we get more and more interested in the minds and the, the kind of magic show of the mind. Beginning to see that actually our thoughts which we usually take to be true and therefore believe in, they're also not necessary to believe them. I'm sure Yanai said that when he was talking about thoughts. Don't have to believe them because they're often not even true. And the freedom that comes from that, realizing I don't have to believe my thoughts. We also talked, and just to remind, we also talked about how much and how important it is to see how the mind state and the emotions color our perception. So, talking still now, all the different ways our perception of what's true and real is conditioned. And the mind state and the emotion will condition. How I'm perceiving a situation I'm in, it will condition how I'm perceiving myself right now in that situation and in my life. How I'm seeing the world and how I'm feeling and seeing my needs. All of that is dependent on the mind state and changes with the mind state and the emotional uh, fact. We need to see this, we need to admit it and we need to really investigate it. Because sometimes our choices come out of that, and sometimes they're very important choices. Going into all this even more, and we touched on this the other day, we begin to see how malleable perception is. You can see things every which way. <clears throat> now, years ago, I uh, did a retreat in in the states um, when I, when I was living there um, with Arjend Jeff, one of my teachers and we were learning a new way of working with the breath involving the whole body kind of feeling like the whole body's breathing and energy, uh, sense of energy and movement of energy in the whole breath and it was new for me and new for a lot of people who were doing it I think he was really introducing it and and people were saying, Oh, I feel the breath energy go up, and someone else said, I feel it go down the back, and others were saying, I feel it go in the legs, and someone would say, It goes clockwise this way, and the other person said, It goes anti clockwise this way. And every time, and they would say, is that, can, is that okay? Is that right? And every time he'd go, Yes. And then he'd go, Yes. Yes. And then he finally said, You know, actually, you can see what you want to see. You can see what you want to see. Another uh, friend who's w- working a little bit in a different tradition where they work a lot with kind of arch- quasi archetypal inner psychological structures, very, very helpful. Um, but she also was beginning, every time they go on retreat, they introduce another few of these structures and then you, you find it inside. And you're beginning to wonder is it there or am I kind of. I can see what you want to see. If you do a lot of meta practice, can just. I can just see your beauty i can I can just switch it on and see your beauty when I want to, even if even if I'm having a difficulty with you, do a lot of meta practice. do a lot of some kinds of practices. I have pain in the body, and I can just decide to see it as pleasure. you've really done a lot It's painful. I can see it as pleasure, I choose to see it as pleasure, and I experience it and feel it as pleasure to to the, this obviously takes a lot of practice, but one can see what you want to see. Perception is malleable, and, and that's a, a, a Dharma fact that actually goes very, very deep and ends up being one of the most um, crucial of, of, sort of truths in the Dharma. And the, a few weeks ago, someone was looking, looking at all this and looking at the way um, mind states change and thoughts change and all of that, and with that, the perceptions change. Just noticing all this, coming in and saying, "Well, it's all impermanent. It's all just changing. My mind state changes, my thoughts change, and the way I see this situation or whatever, and the way I want to choose, that all changes." And then she said, "What can I trust then? What's to trust? It's all—it's all just impermanent. Throw the whole lot out. Is that—is that what? No, no, not—not not wanting to go down that route." Some mind states are more riddled with aversion, with confusion, with grasping, with selfing, with papancha, with agitation. And those mind states are less trustworthy. They're clouding everything up, they're confusing everything, they're, they're less trustworthy as indicators of truth. There's less clarity there. An obvious example is when one is completely plastered drunk. You don't want to make life choices out of out of that space. It's just not a mind state that's conducive to that. But again, it's interesting, I can't remember if I said this the other day with emotions, as far as I can tell, most of us, there is a tendency for humans to believe, uh, say, the perceptions that come out of a mind state of metta and joy, to believe that as To believe that less than the kind of perceptions that come out of a difficult mind state of depression or um, irritation or whatever. We're somehow considering that to be less real. But we need to be really interested in this, particularly how certain mind states color the truth in certain directions. So why is it, oftentimes as human beings, when our spouse or our dear friend tells us about some... Difficult uh, dynamic they're in that we just automatically assume that they're in the right and we're on their side or if someone was telling me recently they had an evening um, this was actually the wrong the other way around than, than might be usually the case was an evening where they could have gone to a Dharma talk and uh, uh, and uh, a kind of dharma gathering of friends in that evening. And actually they got pulled by family duties, something was going on with their family, and they had to attend to that. And they were noticing their mind and what the mind did with it, and this kind of craving to be somewhere where they weren't, with what they missed, and the kind of humdrum everyday reality. So usually it's the other way around, your you're uh, on retreat and wants to be somewhere else. And notice the craving actually painted the, the mist scenario, the lovely gathering of Dharma friends, in technicolor, bright, uh, beautiful, soft hues of glow, glowing warmth, etc. And when you're thinking back on wh- what the actual reality was, it was kind of this um, you know, half-hearted sort of uh, pencil sketch without uh, much... In- it felt threadbare compared to the juicy reality so of what was missed I'm just interested in how the, the craving mind state actually colours either way, both the actuality and, and what wasn't the actuality so we say with all this we say yeah perception is empty but not, we're not going into a kind of nihilism saying it's all impermanent therefore just it doesn't matter not not doing that and we're not saying it doesn't matter what choices we make not going that far it's a middle way empty and our karma our choices our actions and intentions matter greatly so I'm particularly interested today for this talk particularly interested in what all this has to do how all this comes into our practice and our relationship with practice and how it affects our practice. And actually that's huge, and I only want to pick out a few pieces. It's difficult I think I think it's difficult for us as human beings and perhaps especially today, I don't know if it's a cultural thing. It's difficult to discover what we really, really want in life, what our deepest desire is. It's actually difficult to find that and connect with it and know for sure what it is. We are bombarded by so much, advertising, media, this, that, different kinds of fears in ourselves and they're also fed culturally. Uh, The mind state shifting, all of this that I've talked about. It's difficult to discover what is authentically our truth. Truthfulness is, is one of the parameters, one of the qualities, ten qualities the Buddha said that lead to awakening. Uh, Ajahn Jeff, one of my teachers says, truthfulness, satya is the Pali word, truthfulness, also means, also means sticking truly to what you've made up your mind to do, not becoming a traitor to yourself. And he says, if you can't rely on yourself, who will you rely on? No one else can walk the path for you. If you can't rely on yourself, who will you rely on? No one else can walk the path for you. It's strong words. And this is not, in all of this talk, you know, careful, 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 and I have to be careful when I speak, so how, much, how quickly the inner critic can come in and take all this as a kind of attack and take it very negatively and just start going into a kind of uh, inner bunker of being assaulted by the inner critic about all this. Why why am I talking about this why is it bring up why does the buddha list it as one of the 10 parameters when we're aligned as human beings and practitioners when we're aligned and we feel ourselves aligned with what's a really authentically deep desire with our authentic deep longing in this life when that's the case there's a kind of joy with that there is just in that fact there's, there, in that sense, there is a kind of joy, and despite or alongside all the challenges, all the frustrations, all the agitations, just knowing that I'm, uh, I'm, I really deeply am in touch with what I want, and I'm and I'm aligned with it. My life is aligned with it, and I'm moving towards it. There is a joy in that, and there's a kind of energization in that. We're energised. Our being is energised. But what happens to us? What happens to us as human beings? So everything I'm talking about and the difficulties, it's all too human. What happens to us? How is it that the whole thing, we can lose touch with it or the path just becomes a little bit mechanical, lacking in heart, lacking in rootedness in in that authenticity? What happens to us? There's a poem by Rumi. Gamble everything for love if you're a true human being, if not, leave this gathering. half-heartedness doesn't reach into majesty. You set out to find God, but then you keep stopping for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses. It's also pretty strong I mean Rumi has this lovely side that we often quote like he's actually pretty tough too we stop for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses despite what we thought we'd set out for. So, this deep desire, if we can get in contact with it, we might feel at times we're in contact with it, oftentimes though it gets hijacked. It gets hijacked by other forces or it just slips unwittingly, unconsciously in other dire- into other directions. Oftentimes, what it gets hijacked by or where it slips is, again, not that dramatic. I just want to be a bit more comfortable. I want things to be a bit more convenient. I want security. Uh, Fears come in and uh, budge our deep desire out of the center of our heart, out of the center of our being. Sometimes just something like fear of tiredness. How often that might come in and just, just shunt the truth, the authentic truth aside, and it's actually not that big a deal, and yet somehow in that moment it's got more clout, more power, our seeking of sense pleasure, or the inner critic, the way that can come in, just just barge everything out the way. being interested in practitioners as our intentions and in in our intentions and and the movement of our intentions, because they do move. Intentions are impermanent. I might feel completely rooted in my deep heart's longing. One minute, half an hour goes by and the intentions have slipped into something else. Very normal, very human. So again, in terms of dramaticness, in the Mahayana tradition talk about taking the bodhisattva vow, vowing to be reborn, endlessly for the sake of liberating all sentient beings. Beautiful. And I might have a ceremony and take that vow and there's lots of, uh, it's a very dramatic event in my life. But again, a little time goes by and one's forgotten about that. More, probably more significant, more important and actually more common in the literature, in the teachings, is actually repeating that intention many times a day, aligning the being I want to serve others. I want my practice to be of benefit to others. I want to give as fully as I can. Three, five, six times a day. Because <coughs> the move intentions move. And and it takes that repetition, it takes that repeated alignment, that repeated devotion. So this has to do this, this has to do with commitment, resolve, determination, and really being honest. You know, our capacity to really be honest with what is driving us in our life. What is driving us in this moment, or maybe sometimes in this life, what's driving us often, maybe what's driving us primarily in our life. Again, none of this is easy. I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, you know, I'm aware that it's difficult. There's a poem, I think it's W.H. Auden. You know, sometimes, sometimes what's driving us is actually something quite extreme. We feel like we've just gone off we've just been taken with something that we had no intention of being taken with no. No. maybe for a short period maybe for sometimes for years there's this poem by W.H. Auden it's the, the scenario is uh, uh, a man on a horse galloping by uh, on this runaway horse and a bystander kind of turning towards him where are you going? and the man turns back and says I don't know, ask the horse for Rumi, it's a donkey <laughs> sometimes it's very dramatic you know what is driving sometimes it's very dramatic sometimes it's much much more subtle and that's where we need to be interested in the subtle movements particularly it's much more subtle a while ago I was talking very common scenario very common scenario I was talking with someone and she came in and she's saying you know, I really like to practice, and she's been practicing a long time, but I find myself just not doing it. I'm talking about daily practice. I just don't do it. Or I go through long periods, then I come back and I get into it again, then I veer off and I forget all about it. She's interest, beginning to get interested in this. And we talked about different ways of kind of cultivating a sense of urgency and reflecting on death, etc. But it's also partly, can I really look at this dynamic and what might be going on there, open it up without judging. Just really have a look. Open it out. Look what's operating. Not, not judging, but being conscious. There are choices being made. It's just that they're not fully conscious as choice. It's not that we just don't do something or do do something. We actually make choices in life. Our life is full of choices. And, and to, to have them be as, as fully conscious as possible, as fully informed as possible as well, Oftentimes when we look inside, there's mixed motivations. We find that, I want to do this, and I want to do this, or I'm doing this because of this, but also because of this. Fine, there's no problem with that. That's completely okay. That's our humanity there. But which am I nourishing within that mix? What am I strengthening, and what am I aligning myself with? What am I taking care of? It's another poem by Rumi. Again, it's it's pretty... uh, strong, it's very strong, in fact. You miss the garden because you want a small fig from a random tree. You don't meet the beautiful woman. You're joking with an old crone. It makes me cry how she detains you, stinking mouthed with a hundred talons, putting her head over the roof edge to cool down. Tasteless fig, fold over fold, empty as dry, rotten garlic. She has you tight by the belt, even though there's no flour and no milk inside her body. Death will open your eyes to what her face is, leather spine of a black lizard. No more advice. Let yourself be silently drawn by the stronger pull of what you really love. So, how to help, to nurture, to encourage our intentionality to be more deeply authentic? Deeply authentic. I also just want to... When there's self-measurement, when the practice is about self-measurement, is about uh, self-improvement, to me that's not a deeply, it's not felt as a deeply authentic drive for practice. And how, how often this comes in, how often this creeps into our practice, something and just sidelines what's more authentic, the inner critic hijacks our practice. And so, so many times people come to me kind of reporting or realizing, oftentimes after years of practice, that this is the case. And when that's the case, when the inner critic, this voice of criticism, of harshness, of self judgment, when that's in the driving seat, measuring oneself, it's not what I would call deeply authentic. It's not a deeply authentic part of our being. It's not even speaking the truth. It's not the voice of truth. It actually blocks the truth and blocks access to what's more deeply authentic again from some psychological survey apparently an unbelievably high proportion of people um, feel inside that they're, that they're a fraud I, was, I, was quite, I can't remember the figure but I was quite shocked when I, when I actually had this feeling inside that they're a fraud and a fear that they're going to be found out and again that, creep, that creeps into practice People. someone was telling me a while ago I haven't been coming to see a teacher for interviews for a few years because I feel like a fraud, and I feel like I'll be found out, and just beginning to get conscious that that was actually behind their reluctance to come to interviews. What's going on there? The believing of the inner critic is believed to be true. We're believing the inner critic to be true. So this relationship to practice, the inner critic seems so prevalent nowadays in our culture, Different reasons, different reasons. So prevalent. The relationship with practice, it sometimes feels like it's, it's at least half the battle. It's at least half the battle for us. So, you know, a teacher or the teachings might say, be mindful, practice mindfulness, or practice this practice, or this approach, or do this, yeah. or do that. When that lands in the inner critic, we or gets interpreted by the inner critic person and again reported to me been practicing for years but actually lost touch with why they're practicing she can't remember why they're trying to be mindful even or it goes in there and it meets uh, a sense of rebellion rebelling Uh, rebelling at authority or the very idea of practicing in a certain way so I recently gave a whole talk on the inner critic, and i don't I want to I just want to go into it a little bit because I, I feel it's so important. But I just want to say a few things today. We need to turn toward these energies inside To so turn toward the inner critic, turn towards it and pay attention to that voice, listen to it oftentimes it has its power through its vagueness through the fact that we just cower from it without giving it full attention. <clears throat> we just feel badgered and Harangued by it without actually turning towards it and finding out about it and dialoguing with it, speaking to it, listening to it. Someone, when I suggested that to someone recently somewhere else, I said, But I thought we weren't supposed to think in practice. Thinking has its place and using that, using it helpfully. But there's this other character inside that also doesn't get to be fully conscious, and we might call it the inner rebel. Um, that might operate in reaction to the inner critic if well, what am I we need to also inhabit the inner rebel fully, listen to the inner critic and maybe inhabit the inner rebel. I don't wanna or whatever whatever form it takes. feel that fully. There's a strength there that we actually need as human beings. And it might be in the body, it might be a bodily strength, it might be in the belly to really feel That strength is good, it's actually on our side. So some of you may be familiar with the Gestalt therapy, we actually put different characters in different chairs and you get in them and you, you talk them out. We can do that inside with our eyes closed. Get to know these characters, get to inhabit them and explore them. If we don't, what happens is this inner critic gets projected outside, gets projected onto the teacher onto an authority gets projected onto an institution Gaia House IMS, this or that gets projected onto a Sangha if we're not consciously really connecting with the the energies and the, the dynamics of the inner critic or the inner rebel so there's strength to be gotten from the inner rebel but sometimes also connecting with it reveals that there's not much there also with the inner critic someone was saying recently that when they were exploring this inner rebel, it actually, looking, listening more closely, it turned out to not be much of a rebel at all. It was actually just the voice of what they were calling the original status quo. But still, I need to discover that, and I need to explore it. So in practice, or in, in the dark, there's many approaches that we can have. There's not just one way of doing things. Many we can approach things this way and this way. sometimes they're kind of opposite or complementary so two of them for example we talk about anatta non-self and we also talk about self and they're both important and they're both useful so careful that I'm not picking up the language of no-self and anatta and careful I'm not picking that up and kind of denying myself or accusing the self uh, because that won't be helpful rather can I be listening to different aspects of the self with love, with care? Am I caring for the self and what's in there? What do I need? What does the self need? What is needed? And sometimes a person thinks they need to see the emptiness of the self. Actually what they might be needing is a sense of the self connecting more, say on retreat, opening the heart to a sense of connecting with each other rather than just dismissing the self as empty and non-existent. What's needed? The needs, I think we mentioned in the last talk, needs are also a tricky area because that depends on the mind state too. So for some people, this whole not-self business, go into it and there's joy. And that's actually where it should be going eventually. I see the emptiness of self and joy comes up. But sometimes it's not the right moment or time to work in that way and actually much uh, more fruitful to actually get close to the self and discover, rediscover, reconnect with aspects of the being that we might have uh, ignored or sidelined. Reconnect in that way. So, this question, in terms of our authentic deep desire, this question, what do I really, really want? To me, it's, it's a beautiful and incredibly powerful question. And do we kind of honor ourselves and give ourselves the gift of asking ourselves that repeatedly and deeply, dropping that question in, what do I really, really want? Such power in that question and I can follow this I can trust that question I can trust where it leads me I can trust how it unfolds in my being rather than feeling like I'm superimposing a kind of foreign set of practices and teachings from the outside but following that question might not be easy it's also not just about feelings it's not just about feelings it's also about bringing our discernment our intelligence in so someone again was working a little bit with listening inside and the voice of the inner rebel etc and the voice of what do I really want and what does this part want and what does that part want etc and um, oftentimes person on retreat and sometimes people on long retreat will say this is all very well being here but what about the real world what about the real world and then going into that voice and actually discovering that what the real world involved, this person was saying, and um, very good naturedly observing it, was it involved watching Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> if you know that from on TV. Or again, a person on retreat and one might find one's way in, in a sense you know everything empties out, lots of spaciousness, not much going on, more deep samadhi, more deep sense of emptiness. And again, very quite common a person thinks What's this got to do with anything? What's this got to do? What's this refined, admittedly lovely state, maybe frightening state, what on earth's that got to do with my day at work? Or my relationship with anyone? But again, using the intelligence and really asking that question, asking it very deeply, because it has a huge amount to do with all that. But bringing, not not just trusting the feelings letting the feelings go really deep but also bringing in the discernment and the intelligence <clears throat> so if I say what do I really want and usually if I take that deep enough it, it's not so much I want this or, or that personal things that are unique to me pretty much we all end up with similar or different versions of something that's quite similar freedom, love, your own words, joy but again, bringing the discernment in, I have to see, is this that I'm going for? Is it bringing joy? The other day someone uh, played me on, it was, it was on, it's on YouTube if, if you want to find it. Um, it's a, a young Tibetan Rinpoche called, I think his name is Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, I think. Uh, he's a young Tibetan Rinpoche. I think he's the son of Chogyam Trungpa, I think. And he has a rap. It's about a five-minute rap. Uh, actually quite good. Uh, it's called What About Me? and uh, very good lyrics and uh, yeah, very good and he said, what about me? I, spend, I wake up in the morning first thought is me me or maybe those people few people around me what about me? all day long what about me? I go to bed at night I'm still, what about me? and maybe those few people all day long what about me? what about me? and, he, and the lyrics unfold and he said I do this because I think it will make me happy I look out I'm, in, I'm concerned with number one is that if that was the case he says it much more poetic if that was the case this is a the line They said if that were really true that what about me what about me putting me number one all the time even and he says he says it's even me at the center of my own practice this practice that practice my practice my practice my process my 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 if that were really true if that were really helpful I should be he says I should be a bundle of happiness by now <laughs> it obviously doesn't work Anyway, it's a good rap if you're into if you're into it. <laughs> the whole question of of, of the, this is what do I need? What do I need? This this given all that I've just said in, in the last minutes this ends up being a really important question. And I'm really having honesty, what do I need? Not jumping into the anatta and denying the not self and denying that the self has any needs and not but really bringing honesty in there. So we talk about kindness and clarity. We talk about compassion and wisdom, the two principal bodhisattvas, Avalokiteshvara, bodhisattva of compassion, Manjushri, the bodhisattva of wisdom. Both need to be there. So we emphasize a lot, I mean, this talks. I realize it's quite, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, challenging. And in a lot in the teachings, and I think, Importantly, it's very important. We emphasise a lot about softness and holding and encouraging and, 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 and that very compassionate. This behind me is uh, Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva of Compassion. We don't have Manjushri in here. Manjushri has a sword, sword and he cuts through delusion. And they're balanced. Manjushri and Avalokiteshvara, they're balanced. There's a very um, popular version of Rumi's poems, and some of you may have it, uh, with Coleman Barks' translation. It's really, really beautiful if you, don't, if you haven't seen it. And uh, he, he, little bits of commentary from Coleman Barks. In, in, in a chapter uh, of, within this book, Coleman Barks writes the introduction. He says, Don't listen too often, Rumi advises, to the comforting part of the self that gives you what you want. Pray instead for a tough instructor. Nothing less than the radical disassembling of what we've wanted and gotten and what we still wish for allows us to discover the value of true being that lies underneath. The pickaxe, for Rumi, represents whatever does this fierce attention work, clear discernment, a teacher's presence, simple strength, and honesty with oneself. The pickaxe dismantles the illusory personality, Actually, The Pickaxe belongs to another poem. I want to read you another Rumi poem. Again, it's it's talking about this. He uses strange language. He he uses this cutting through uh, and the kind of stronger element. He's calling it masculinity. So we don't, I mean, that's just what he uses. We don't have to go with any kind of gender division or that. But that's just what he uses. The core of masculinity, this is Rumi now, the core of masculinity does not derive from being male. Nor friendliness from those who console. Your old grandmother says, Maybe you shouldn't go to school, you look a little pale. Run when you hear that. A father's stern slaps are better. Your bodily soul wants comforting, the severe father wants spiritual clarity. He scolds, but eventually leads you into the open. Pray for a tough instructor to hear and act and stay within you. We have been busy accumulating solace. Make us afraid of how we were. So, again, please watch out if, if this is landing in, in a critic. The difficulty of talking in this way is that that's where it will land, but that's actually not authentic. I need to find a way of actually bringing some of these considerations and reflections in that isn't anything to do with beating myself up, isn't anything to do with unkindness. It's actually a movement of kindness, a movement of a gift towards myself. I need to finish because there's time, I'm going to leave a bunch out, but... Uh, one last, couple of last points. I've noticed more recently because uh, in, in, I've been involved in different kinds of teaching and different aspects of the Dharma teaching. What I've noticed is that actually is quite common for practitioners, even long, long-term practitioners, to pre-decide the truth about something and actually um, approach some very deep level of truth in the Dharma with already pre-decided, already with a preconception, one way or another, And this is something I think as human beings, as practitioners, certainly as as we deepen in practice, we need to be really, really attentive to. And so it can be things like the place of effort and doing in practice. One just decides, it's not true, I don't like it, or I prefer it's not there. Or the fact that there is a path or that there isn't a path. That there is or isn't such a thing called awakening and enlightenment and that possibility. Just noticing that people decide this and then it's just a fait accompli without actually really being open or investigating. Or again, with the whole notion of truth. The person says, there's no, real, there's no real truth. What you can say is my truth and your truth. It's just been decided. Or there's no possibility of transcendence. There's no deathless, there's no unfabricated. And often a person decides that and says that quite strongly without anywhere near the meditative depth for checking out whether any of this is actually the case or not. And something in us wants to um, say something and decide something without sometimes even the dedication to the meditative depth that might allow that seeing of whether it is or whether there isn't. Or awareness is the deathless and someone says it is or it isn't. Lots of things like that. But the point I want to make is that really to be aware as we deepen of our predispositions because we have predispositions with this stuff. Our allegiances and why and our preferences and not to stop the questioning. Not to stop the questioning. To keep that alive. Rumi last little poem I honor those who try to rid themselves of any lying of any untruth who empty the self and have only clear being there but can we trust that how fully how fully can i surrender to that and trust that how fully do i trust this letting go of any any aspect of untruth How fully do I trust the truth and even trust my awareness of the places where, which I will find, I do find, I am less than completely true. I trust that awareness, that excavation and the surrender to the truth. The more I do that, the more freedom comes. and The deeper and deeper freedom comes. When the freedom comes, I have more confidence in in surrendering to the truth, in speaking the truth, in, in, in aligning with the truth. And have more confidence, I do that. More more freedom comes. More trust in the truth. And so the path snowballs on. It's one way, that the, the, the one aspect of the, of the way that the path deepens and deepens into freedom. It's this commitment to truth in every, every possible way. Okay, so let's uh, have a couple of quiet moments together.